making things right. When Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in 458 BC, so that's not quite 500 years before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was confronted with many problems, problems of a most sensitive nature that went to the very foundation of both family and community life. And the main issue was that of mixed marriages with the heathen, or the pagans, if you like, or the Canaanites. But these issues had to be dealt with if God's blessing was to remain upon the great enterprise of faith which Ezra, along with the people, had committed themselves to. The problem was, and it's always a problem, sin was separating the Jews from God and creating all kinds of problems. Do I need to mention it tonight? Do I need to be reminded of my own state before God that sin always separates us from God and creates all kinds of problems? It was therefore essential that Ezra's prayer, and we dealt with this last time, and his prayer is found there in chapter 9, uh, it was therefore essential that Ezra's prayer be followed with repentance. As I mentioned last time, Ezra never asked for forgiveness or pardon in his prayer. And I found that to be a very strange thing. But then when you think it through, there's a great truth that is taught to us. There can be no forgiveness without repentance. And at this point of time, the people had not yet repented. And that was the reason why that man got on his face before God and he prayed. Remember the figure? He was on his knees before God. Now, in passing, there are three great ninth chapter prayers in the Bible. Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and then Daniel chapter 9. It would be good for you sometime just to sit down for a little time and read these three prayers and these three ninth chapters of the Word of God. In Ezra chapter 9, we see Ezra and the people broken because of their sin. They were trembling, they were weeping, they were a broken people. And when you come to chapter 10, we see Ezra and the people breaking with their sin. Because they had to get things put right, you see. So they were broken because of their sin. They were weighed down, they were convicted, they had to confess. And now they move on to break with their sin. And just before moving on to the main body of the message, Ezra's prayer teaches us to never underestimate the power of the prayers of one true believer. I, I cite James chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. That's the prayer of Elijah. He had, he had power with God in prayer. And you may ask the question, why? Because the intercession of one concerned soul can make a difference and what God will do to and for his people. Now remember that. Just one concerned, burdened soul, the prayer of that individual can make all the difference in the world. Now the chapter, uh, I always like to look for a chapter division. It's helpful when you come to study the word to understand what a chapter is all about or what a book's all about. And this 10th uh, chapter, this final chapter, 
can be divided into three parts. Verses 1 through 8 teach us that true prayer leads to repentance. So you've got the prayer in chapter 9, and it's followed then by dealing with the subject of repentance in the opening verses of chapter 10. Then verses 9 through 17 teaches that true repentance leads to separation. So they're getting right with God. They're putting away the strange ways. So uh, we can see that uh, true prayer leads to repentance. True repentance leads to separation. And then the final verses, 18 through 44, teaches that true separation leads to restoration. They get right with God. God forgives them and restores them and is gracious and merciful to them. So what we have discovered here works today. Still the same. Same principles. Same truths are being taught. Well, there's another way you can look at it if you so desire. In verses 1 through 8, you have the people's initiative. They're on the move. The people have been stirred through Ezra the prophet. Or they, they describe the man who they saw on his knees in prayer. They're, they're moved. They're stirred. Then verses uh, 9 through 15, the mass meeting in Jerusalem. Well, if this is not a breath of revival, I don't know what else is. And then you have 16 through 44, legal proceedings. They had to do it officially according to the law. Everything had to be done legally according to the law of God. So that's just, by the way, you have an idea of what this chapter is all about. I have three simple things I want to highlight especially. First of all, there is a change in the chapter. When Ezra prayed and wept at the altar before the house of God, we're told here in verse 1, a very great congregation of men and women and children came together. Do you see that there in the very first verse? After the conclusion of the prayer, a great congregation gathers and they fall under conviction of sin. And it says there in verse 1, they wept very sore. Now, this response wasn't something Ezra worked up. Some preachers uh, try to work a spirit up in the meeting. A lot of these charismatic preachers and so on. A lot of hype. But this was something that Ezra prayed down. He prayed this down from heaven, this movement of God. Remember Ezra, uh, Elijah, he prayed the fire from heaven down and the sacrifice was consumed. So true prayer leads to repentance and there's evidence of the change in this 10th chapter before us today. The people wept sore or we could say they wept bitterly. Remember the parable of the two sons in Matthew chapter uh, 21. Remember the father said to both of them, go work today in my vineyard. One said, I will go, I will not, I will go. I will not go. I'll get it right. But he repented and went. Now, what happened to that young man? Well, he had a change of attitude. He had a change of mind. And he had a change of direction. And that's what has happened here in Ezra chapter 10. Now, just let me highlight a few things about this repentance. It began in the heart. How do I know that? Well, the people were very sore. What does that mean? They were very sorry for their sin. Obviously, 
what they saw and what they heard from the man on his knees smote their hearts and consciences. So here is a good recommendation for us as the people of God. We need to keep our eyes on the one who kneeled in Gethsemane and sought his heavenly father's face to keep us in our walk with God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God was at work in this chapter through the priest. And God is at work throughout the scriptures in the hearts of his people, seeking to bring them to repentance through the great high priest, at God's right hand, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they wept sore. Now such tears were a hopeful sign according to, to verse 2. A man stood up and said, there's hope for Israel. But by themselves, tears are not the infallible sign of true repentance. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, 17 about Esau. He sought repentance and he sought it with tears. But he was not real. It was all false. It wasn't real. He never was brought to repentance. Rather, it is the heart behind the tears that God discerns. We can weep. We can cry, we can put on a show uh, for the audience, if you like. But that doesn't fool God. He knows what's behind the tears. If it's real, that's the heart he looks at. What are our hearts like tonight, O oh God, in thy sight? Only God knows. Only God knows. So it began with the heart. And then it moved to the, to the lips. Then all the congregation spake and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. Verse 12. It led to public confession of sin. Public sins need to be confessed publicly, but private things need to be confessed privately. We don't need to go into confessional box to bring our prayers to any man. Uh, no wonder so many of the priests have been corrupted down through the years with what fills their minds at times. We don't have to do that. If we have public sins, we need to confess it publicly. If we have private sins, we need to get before God into the closet and get on our face before him and confess our sins there. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it begins in the heart, it moves to the lips, there's the confession, and then it actually moves to the hands. How do we make that out? In verse 19, I think it is, it says, they gave their hands that they would put away their wives. What does that mean? They gave the promise or they took an oath. A few want to buy something at an auction or some kind of market. And, and uh, the boy's asking 50, 50 pounds for this piece of furniture, say. Uh, you, you try to bargain them down a wee bit. I've learned that from Korean people, that this is what you do. So uh, you try to get them down to 45 at least, and then you come to 43, you strike a deal. What do you do? Put out the hand. You take them by the hand. That's a deal. I, I promise to give you 45 pounds for that. You've robbed me, but I'm going to give you the 45 pounds anyway. Okay. 
And this is the kind of thing. They, they, they were to give their oath before God that they would do what the Lord uh, had told them. They, they pledged their right hand. And you can check it out at 2 Kings 10, 15, Ezekiel 17, verse 18. They signed their names. Maybe they signed their names. I don't know for sure. They gave their hand. They gave their oath. They signed their names to do what God had commanded them. So these are just three little things about repentance. It begins in the heart. It moved to the lips. Then it moved to the hands. And uh, this shows that the repentance uh, involved the whole man, if you like. I can't remember who it was. I took this note down. I don't know who it was that said this. But this is what he said. The church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It's change in belief without change in behavior, revival without reformation, reformation without repentance. There's a change in this chapter. God's at work. The people are reduced to tears. There's a manifestation here. There's evidence of repentance. Prayers have been answered. God has been glorified. The people are ready now to confess their sins. In the second place, there is the cooperation in the chapter. Uh, we're told here in verse 2 about this man, uh, Shechaniah. Shechaniah, he became the spokesperson for the people. Uh, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, some of his relatives, according to verse 26, they had been involved in this and they had married foreign, foreign women. But uh, he's not on the list. No way did he get involved in this. His name is interesting. His name means uh, to abide with Jehovah or dweller with Jehovah. That's interesting. To most people, the situation seemed hopeless. But to the man who was a dweller with God, he said, yet now there is hope in Israel. This man was in touch with God. He was a man who dwelt with God. He knew the mind of God. And he steps into the arena to back up the preacher, to back up the man of God. And he's saying to the people, the man who dwelt in the presence of God, there is yet hope in Israel for this situation. He confessed his own sin. You can see that for yourself. And he confessed the sins and the guilt of the nation. And then he was the man who suggested a plan. The man who dwelt in the presence of God had a plan. Where did he get it from? Well, where do you think? In the presence of God. And he proposes, he makes a proposal. And his plan was simple but demanding. And verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with God. What's he saying here? Let's get back to God. Could we not try that from the hilltops of uh, Northern Ireland? Let us get back to God. Surely we could. We could go across to England and do the same thing up to Scotland and across to Wales and stand in the highest point and cry, let us get back to God. That's what this man did. The man who dwelt in the presence of God brought this plan. This was his uh, recommendation. Let us make a covenant with God. And in that same verse, the demand was high. 
let's put away all the ways of such born of them. And it had to be done according to the law, verse 3. So he wants things to be done. He wants it to be done soon. He wants it to be done according to what has been revealed in the word of God. And furthermore, in verse 4, he said to Ezra, Arise, we will be with thee. There's the cooperation. This man is standing shoulder to shoulder with the scribe, with the priest, with the leader. Uh, and he's encouraging him to take this bold stand. We'll stand with you. But we're here. We're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And then Ezra accepted the plan. This is good. They're working together. Uh, there's cooperation. This is what's needed in any work. This work, any work. And then this is what uh, Ezra did. He didn't take all the burden uh, and all the load onto himself. That would have been a very foolish thing. Some people get burnt out. Some preachers get burnt out because they take far too much responsibility upon their shoulders. That's not God's will. That's not God's way. God's way is to delegate responsible people who can do the work of God, who are accountable to the oversight in the church, the congregation. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Responsible people, called of God, who have the marks of God upon them, who have the confidence of the congregation and who are accountable to the oversight of the congregation. He immediately swore in the leading priests and the Levites as a committee to investigate the matters and to see to it that the law was obeyed. You can find that information in verse 5. I'm trying to get through a lot here tonight in the closing night, but take time to read it and try to remember what I'm saying about these particular verses. So he formed a committee. And that's why in the Presbyterian church we have the, the spiritual oversight, the eldership, whose responsibility is to take care of spiritual matters. Then we have the, the committee, if you like, or the deacons. doesn't matter what term you use. There's the same, the same idea. They have responsibilities for the more mundane things. And our men do a very good job, by the way. They do a lot of things away behind the scenes that nobody else knows about. I want to thank you for doing that. It takes a lot of burden of me and the rest of the men as well, and for the session. And I want to thank the session just for taking a stand. It's been a difficult time for them these past two years and four or five months. They haven't just been sitting, uh, twiddling their fingers or thumbs behind the scenes. They've been trying to help me to get a man uh, who will be suitable, God's man for this congregation. And make a valuable contribution. What would we do without them? Pray for them. Rally behind them and encourage them in the things of God. Cooperation is the word. Do you see it? There's cooperation in the chapter. So he sets up this committee and he withdraws. Ah, he's not away for a break. He's not taking a few days off to the Hilton Hotel. Not at all. Where does he go to? He's into the house of a man called, or into the apartment of Johanan in the temple. What does he go there for? He's not going to eat. He's not going to feast. He's going to fast and pray for guidance. So he sets up the committee. They have responsibilities. And he's going to give himself to prayer. Just like Acts chapter 6, the elders gave themselves to the study of the word and prayer. They appointed the deacons for the oversight of, of the congregation. So he did not act in haste. He just waited on the Lord. Just took his time. Sometimes we make a rash decision and we live to, to regret it. They that wait upon the Lord, the Bible says. 
children you're saying. Of course, there's, there are times when you have to take swift action, but not all the time. You've got to wait on the Lord. So he took his time and he waited upon the Lord in prayer. And he left it to the special committee to make the decision and to tell the people what to do. Cooperation is needed, you see. Now, I, I read this beautiful little illustration, and it, it brought a tear to my eye when I read it. And I want to share it with you. There were two ladies, and they lived in a convalescent home. And uh, both suffered from uh, an incapacitating uh, stroke. Margaret's left-hand side was restricted because of that, and Ruth's right-hand side was damaged. And both ladies were accomplished pianists, but had given up all hope of ever playing again. Now, the director of that centre set them down one day at a piano and encouraged them to play solo pieces together. And they did. So Ruth, she used... Her left hand and Margaret used her right hand. I hope I've got that right. If I haven't, you'll understand what I'm meaning. So here they have these two ladies. Oh boy, they're loving it. It's been a long time in the convalescent home, but oh, they're loving this now. And they're really getting into it now. They're playing away. And all the rest of the old girls and old fellas begin to sing whatever it is. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. And they're playing away. They're getting into it. They're loving it. And you know, that created a bond of friendship and fellowship. And it turned out to be a real blessing. What a picture we have of the church needing to work together. What one member cannot do alone, perhaps two or more could do together in harmony. What a wonderful picture. Committee called the people to appear in Jerusalem within three days. The law is set now, it's established, it's up to the committee now, takes the burden of Ezra, see that? He's going to uh, go in there and pray and, and the committee's going to take the heat now. It's in them. But there's a decision to make. And so they make the proclamation that every person in Jerusalem and the outlying villages, you need to be in Jerusalem in three days' time. And if you're not there... There's no mess in here. If you're not there, you're going to be expelled from the community. And furthermore, your substance, your property is going to be confiscated. No messing about. The kid gloves are off now. This is God's work. We're dealing with repentance here. Cooperation in the work. God's at work here. Things have got to be put right. And now they were given three days. Well, a little space here, but they were given time to get in. And then at that time, each marriage would be investigated and uh, the committee would discover those who had violated the law. I've got to come to a close. So we looked at two things here, the change in the uh, chapter, the cooperation in the chapter, and then finally there's the commitment in the chapter. I quote that verse 19 again. They gave their hands. Remember, uh, uh, the man wanting the piece for 45 pounds, he got it, they shook the man's hand. There's the same picture. So when you read the information provided in verse 9 and, and right through, we read it on the 19th of December, 458 BC, men from the two main tribes, that is Judah and Benjamin, plus the exiles from other tribes gathered in the streets 
before the temple to start the solemn investigation. You can see that there in verse 9. It was in the middle of the rainy season, verses 9 and 13 talk about the rain here, and that was between uh, October to mid-April, that's the rainy season. And the Bible says that the crowd trembled, not because, simply because of the weather, it was pouring down, but because they were sure the head of rain was a prelude to the judgment of God. And then in verse 9 or, to, or verse 10, we're told that Ezra, the priest, stood up and said unto them. That, I find that interesting because, as you can remember, hopefully, last week in chapter 9, he's on his knees. And then in chapter 10, he's on his feet. Now, you think about that. What's he doing on his knees? Well, he's supplicating the Lord. And now that he's on his feet, what's he doing? He's standing for the Lord. He's received boldness on his knees and now he's standing courageously for God on his feet. Sometimes we need to supplicate and other times we need to stand. And now here comes this, the all-important message from God. He needed courage to do this. Ezra made it clear that mixed marriages would have to be dissolved. Verse 10, ye have trespassed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel, now therefore make confession, and so on. Do you see that? He needed grace to do that. And I want to tell you something. I learned this from 40 years of experience, over 40 years of experience. When you have to preach the word of God, you need courage. You need holy boldness. You definitely do. And any preacher can testify uh, to the same thing. So because the faithful choose to confess their sin and separate them from people who disobeyed God's love. Now, it was impractical to try to interrogate so many people in one place. I don't know how many thousands of people were there, but it was an impossibility to do this in one day, especially with the weather being so inclement. The work could not be done in one day. So if these thousands of people gathering together... But when you come down to verse 15, uh, and you can take time to read this yourselves, there were four men who dissented. Now, I don't know how many thousand people were there, and they were wholehearted to get this business done, and there were four people who dissented. That's always the way it is. You could get a whole congregation united. It could be 500 people in a congregation, and you have four people dissented or disagrees with the decision. That's always the way it has been. I'll never change. That's human nature. So we see here in verse 15, human nature. And this is a lesson for us individually, members of the congregation here as well, and those who may be listening online. So thousands are agreeing. They're standing in the rain. They're prepared to do what Ezra has called them to do. And then you get four people down there, oh boy, and you look at them and there's miserable sin. Oh, I'm not going to go that way. I, I disagree with this. That's it. Ten days later, verse 16, on the 29th of December, Ezra and the leaders sat down together and began to investigate the matter. Three months later, it takes a, a bit of time. 27th of March, 457, the work was finished. It had been a very difficult job. 
very difficult job. And they discovered that over a hundred priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers have been guilty of this sin. It wasn't easy. The guilty priests, they promised to put away their heathen wives and they offered sacrifice and God forgave them according to verses 18 and 19. We assume the rest of the people did the same thing. God in grace accepted their repentance and their confession and granted them forgiveness. But, listen to it, making it right didn't automatically heal every wound or remove every pain. Why? Because the woman had to leave the community and go back to their heathen homes where they came from. And they had to take with them the children who were born in union with these men from Israel. That wasn't going to be easy. It's easy to pull nails out of the board, but it's impossible to pull out the holes that they leave behind. Over 13 years later, the problem of mixed marriages reoccurred again or uh, surfaced again in the days of Nehemiah when he was the governor of Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 13. It's possible for leaders to en enforce the law and reform the nation's conduct, but only God can change the heart. You can make laws and you can force people to obey, but only God can change the heart and produce the real repentance that is needed. And, and, and the, the character that wants to do what is right, that's a work of God's grace. There's a difference between reformation and revival. Now at this point, we've got to move on. Ezra disappears from the record. Until 13 years later, when we find him expounding God's law in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now Nehemiah moves into the limelight, if you like. And we can be sure that Ezra continued to work and labor among God's people, but was no longer the, prom the prominent figure, if you like. It's hard for someone who's been so prominent in a great work to step aside when the time comes. You can be in a place too long or in a job too long and spoil even the good years that you had in that particular place. And Ezra was a wise man. He had that spirit of discernment. A special work was done. The Lord uses one person today and may employ someone else tomorrow. God used a man here for many years, but he had to move. And now God has another man ready to come into this pulpit. And we need to be praying much even tonight that God would show us that man. He is one man for one day, someone else for tomorrow. Ezra moves out of the prominent light, if you like, out of the spotlight. Nehemiah steps in. Let's pray that God will bring us a Nehemiah soon to the glory of God. So we entered Jerusalem in 458 with the intention of building up the people of God. He achieved his goal by calling them back to repentance to seek the Lord. Ezra's prayer that they offered was not a long prayer. It can be read aloud in a few minutes. But it has a tremendous depth. You can read that again. This is what Spurgeon said. It is the strength of our prayers, not the length of our prayers, that is important. And he was right. So the mighty enterprise of Ezra 
was completed. He had finished his course and he'd finished his course well. But there was more work for him to do. 13 years later, we find him on a pulpit of wood up there standing to read the law of God. And the people are given to understand the meaning through his ministry. And it followed by a time, was followed by a time of weeping and rejoicing. And they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles. And gladness, gladness in Jerusalem had not been witnessed since the time of Joshua. Oh, there was a time of great rejoicing, a time of great feasting. God was among his people. Thank God for Ezra. And the work that God gave him to do. There's commitment here in this portion. God used Ezra. May God use Ezra's book to bring encouragement to us all tonight. Putting things right. And as we come to pray, let's remember what Spurgeon said. It is the strength of our prayers, not the length of our prayers, that is important. And he was right. Let's get down and seek the Lord's face together.